Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. I'm going to read to us just the final paragraph in that chapter, starting in verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eschol, and Mamre take their share. Let's pray. Father, we pause before you this morning with your word open in front of us, and we ask that you would work in our hearts by your Spirit, even as we look at these historical events from thousands of years ago in the life of a man named Abram who will become so important to us, and as we are introduced to Melchizedek a mysterious character with mysterious words who is also so important to us. And we ask, Father, that in this time we would not be uh, taken with uh, historical questions only, that we would not be distracted by names that are difficult to pronounce or uh, curious questions that have no good answers. But we pray instead that you would help us to see your faithfulness, to see your kindness and gentleness towards your people, to see your abundant provision and protection for your people. And so we ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to uh, work our way through, Lord willing, all of Genesis chapter 14 today, and there's a a uh, very interesting um, story uh, that goes on here about a kind of a struggle between some Western kings and some Eastern kings and how Lot and Abram get uh, embroiled in that and, and what ends up coming from that. But uh, just by way of kind of introduction, I want to uh, point out some, uh, some issues that different uh, theologians and scholars have with regard to this passage that, that we'll um, 
become important to us. Uh, to this point, archaeology, I didn't read through the first paragraph there, and that wasn't only because I can't pronounce the names, though that's part of it. I mean, I, yeah. So, uh, that's not the only reason, but uh, as we look through and read through this story, we're going to read about these kings from uh, the east who uh, banded together and they kind of subdued the kings around them. Uh, and then they, they even came into the western lands and, and subdued uh, people there in the Jordan Valley and others as well and things like that. And, and the question becomes, well, when did this happen? And, and who were these kings? And is there independent corroboration from archaeology, from history, from some other external source about this going on? And so that's kind of the question that gets raised. Well, archaeology has revealed n- almost nothing about these people. We know, don't know uh, about these kingdoms. Uh, we don't know about these kings. We don't know about these events that went on. Uh, we know about some of the kingdoms, but uh, archaeology hasn't been able to independently uh, corroborate the things that we read here. Well, of course, the liberal scholar, when he reads that, he says, see, it can't be true. It's not true. It's some myth. It's, some, it's invented stories with invented kings and, and all these things to, to tell a, you know, a spiritual point, uh, to, to, to uh, write an ancient uh, kind of spiritual mythology. And so, of course, they don't believe it. This is, a, in their opinion, these are fictitious people and these are fictitious events and this never really happened because it's not been proven by archaeology. And so, that's the way the liberal will take it. Uh, that's, they, they take it to, uh, as confirmation, this lack of uh, archaeological evidence and other things like that. They'll take that as confirmation of what they already believed, namely that the Bible is a myth, right? Well, uh, as so many other events and, and characters of the Bible have been independently corroborated by archaeology, by history, by external sources, again and again we see that happen. It seems reasonable to, uh, for us to look at these events and assume that the Bible is telling the truth here as well as, as in all the other places where the Bible is telling the truth. And in fact, it seems unreasonable to uh, call these events fiction just because archaeology is silent on the topic. Uh, so archaeology hasn't dug up the right place or made the right connections yet. Okay, that's fine. They're, they're working on it, and that's not a problem to me. But in fact, when we look at these events, when we look at these uh, names and these uh, these city-states and all that stuff, the names of the kings mentioned in these passages are consistent with the names and locations of other kings in the area. Consistent with, meaning it's a similar type of name. We don't read in here that King, uh, you know, uh, King Brennan uh, from uh, the ancient kingdom of, you know, Wizzlebop, you know, like the names are consistent, the language is consistent, and, uh, and so it, it seems to fit in because of that, with, uh, fit in with the names and languages of others in the area. As well, the political machinations that go on were consistent with the kind of things that went on at that time, that uh, city-states were the norm at the time and in the region, that you would have a king of a city and the small surrounding region, and there would be a king, you know, maybe just in the next valley or maybe even just farther down the valley, and uh, they would sometimes band together and they would go raid other kings and they would subdue these other kings. And what we read here going on in this chapter fits in with what went on in the ancient world and in the ancient Near East. And so it's consistent. Uh, it's consistent with what we learn there. And so um, there, there can be scholars who will point at the lack of archaeological support as if that's an argument against the truth of Scripture. When I want to point out what they're arguing from is silence. They're saying archaeology is silent on this. 
Therefore, the Bible can't be true. Well, we don't make arguments from silence. In fact, the Bible again and again and again has shown itself to be true in, in the events that happened, in historical places that were. Even though archaeology sometimes will say that that place never existed, the, the Hittites never existed. And then what do you know? We dig up a place and, oh, there were Hittites. That was a whole civilization. That's weird. I don't, I don't know how we could have known that. We could have read our Bible and seen that that was the case. And so the silence of archaeology doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't persuade me at all. I agree with the conservative scholars on this point that the, these kings and these kingdoms and the events that went on here were real events that we read about in this chapter. So the question for us today, though, not just historical, not just archaeological, but the, the, the question for us today is, what do we learn from this passage? And so I've got a simple outline uh, there for you, and we see, first of all, an unsurprising uh, predicament, okay? Lot gets himself into trouble, and that shouldn't surprise us. And so we kind of want to work through the story here of these first uh, few verses, and I want to read for us verses 1 through 5 so I can display uh, impeccable pronunciation of ancient names. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Caterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedalamer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Kedalamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Eshtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathayim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran and the border of the wilderness. So you've probably got uh, perhaps lost in my pronunciation of those names or the names themselves, but essentially what's happening is you've got these four kings who were from the east, and they banded together, formed a coalition, and, and started raiding surrounding neighborhoods. Right? So they would go to these other city-states and they would subjugate those peoples. And particularly, they had gone to the western kings around the Jordan Valley and they had subjugated those people. And so the people in the west, in the Jordan Valley there, were having to pay tribute to these eastern kings. It was a pretty sweet arrangement for the eastern kings until, and that went on well for 12 years. And then finally, they got tired of it. The western kings did. And in the 13th year, they rebelled. They stopped paying their tribute that they were supposed to pay. And so what do you think brought about? That brought about the retribution of the eastern kings coming against them. And so they weren't pleased about that. They came and waged war and decided to secure their claims uh, and put down this rebellion. And so while they were at it, they rolled in these other kingdoms as well to, to uh, conquer them and, and, um, and get tribute from them. So it was a pretty good deal for these eastern kings. The rebellion of the western kings was going to cause a problem, but it sent them on another uh, uh, consolidation effort. And so they were waging war. And then uh, when they were coming, the eastern kings were coming to the west, we read in verse 8, then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim, with Kedolaramer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. 
And so this is taking place, uh, the Valley of Sedim there is the Valley of the, it's the Salt Sea, so it's, it's by the Dead Sea is where uh, basically this battle is happening. Verse 10, now the Valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits, tar. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Right? And so there's war going on. The, the, the kings in the valley there in the Jordan Valley gather together and they're going to do battle trying to defend themselves and fend off these eastern kings. Uh, but it doesn't go well for them and, and they end up being routed and some fall into the tar pits and some just run into the hills. Uh, but they've been routed by these eastern armies once again. In verse 11, so the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions and went their way. So these eastern kings, they got their way, and they were able to conquer the western kings again who were in rebellion, and they raided them, and they took all their provisions. Um, they looted the place, and then they uh, went on their way. And verse 12, they also took Lot. Remember, last time we left Lot, he was looking around for the best land in the region. He found the best land, and it was well watered. It was like the, it was like the garden of, of God, and it was this wonderful place, and it's, it's called Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, and, and so he moves in there. And that's where he has uh, pitched his tents, and uh, that's where he's been living. But now this whole war has happened, and the result is uh, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went on their way. So these western kings come, uh, or, or go out to fight against the eastern kings. The eastern kings defeat them again in the process. They capture Lot. And they take him, they take all of his possessions, and they flee with them. So the eastern kings really have been enriched to this point. So that's kind of the political goings-on, the, the warfare, what's happening there. But, but even at this point, we can, uh, we can see that there were warning signs. This shouldn't surprise us entirely that Lot would get, get himself into uh, trouble by moving to Sodom. You see, we've already learned some things. We're going to learn a lot more. But we've already learned some things about Sodom, about Gomorrah, and about what the place was like. If you look back across the page to uh, chapter 13 and verse 10, uh, we read over there that uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So the previous events when Lot was lifting his eyes and looking around trying to figure out where he wanted to move next, he thought the likely place was this Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and uh, we have a, a parenthetical note here saying this place was slated for destruction, by the way. It's going to happen. And so we're warned as the reader that this was going to happen. And why is that going to happen? Look down at verse 13 of chapter 13. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so the men of that place were so wicked. It was such an evil population. It was such a wicked place that God was going to destroy it. And that's right where Lot chose to go. And so even knowing what little we know about Sodom and Gomorrah, even if we've not read into the next couple of chapters and heard about the place and heard about what's going to happen there, we've already been given warnings that this isn't going to go well. You don't want to be attached to these people. You don't want to move into that neighborhood. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that Lot gets into trouble when he moves there. And so we're going to move on with the story, but I, there's, a, there's a point of observation here kind of in passing that we ought to pay attention to. Maybe there's a Maybe there's a lesson here for us about how vulnerable we can be to our environment. Lot shouldn't have moved there in the first place. And having moved there, he shouldn't have stayed there. He should have left. We are more vulnerable to the influences of our environment than we would like to think. 
Sometimes we think, oh, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't bother me. That, that won't influence me when I go into this context or when I, when I enter that area or I begin to participate in this particular activity or whatever. We just need to be aware of how influential the environment can be upon us. And we in this room are not exempt from this. We need to be deliberate. We need to be cautious about what environments we place ourselves in. That doesn't mean we never go to difficult places. That doesn't mean that we never into, enter into uh, d- different uh, relationships, perhaps, with, with someone who, um, uh, you know, is an unbeliever or, or is rough around the edges in other ways. But we need to be aware as we do so. We need to be wary of the influence our environment can have upon us. That's, that's just in passing. That's not the thrust of the passage. But, but we would be amiss if we, didn't, if we didn't notice that Lot got himself into trouble because he moved to Sodom. Okay. So let's not miss that. All right, so we see uh, the events there, an unsurprising predicament. However, it's followed up by a surprising victory. A surprising victory. Look at verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. So first of all, I want to notice in passing that Abram living in the land hasn't been like making enemies of everybody. Though he, he sets up the altar and though he, he calls on the name of the Lord and though he is clearly a follower of Yahweh, a different God than these around him, yet he has allies in the area. That he, he has uh, made himself at home in a way and he has these allies is an impressive uh, thing when you think about him. And notice also he's called Abram the Hebrew. So he's not just some guy. He's not just... Um, that man who lives over there, he, he's becoming a people. He's becoming a people. He's beginning to uh, see. We, as the readers, are beginning to see that God is fulfilling uh, His promises. He's beginning to fulfill His promises to Abram. And so he has, uh, Abram the, the Hebrew, has allies in the region. But we continue reading in verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. A couple other things to notice here. He had 318 trained men who were born in his own household that he could take into battle. He didn't have to train up an army. He didn't have to go uh, find some uh, people and pay them money, you know, as mercenaries to fight for him or, or, you know, give granny a spear or something like that. He had 318 trained men who were ready to go to war. That's impressive. On the one hand, that's very surprising because we, we know Abram as a nomad. I mean, he's been blessed and he's, he's been given riches and he's had different opportunities and things like that, but, but the number 318 in his own household of men who could take up the, the sword and go fight tomorrow is impressive. We're, we're talking about someone who is becoming a people. He's becoming a nation. He's uh, of considerable influence Already, he's a man to be reckoned with in the region. God has already blessed him and if he's able to field 318 men for battle. So that's on the one hand. That's very surprising. But on the other hand, 318 men? You remember these four armies from the east? Do you remember what they've done already? They, they have banded together and they've taken town after town after city after city after city and they've conquered them. And when uh, the, the uh, cities and the kings of the Jordan Valley rebelled against them, they came and whooped them again. 
So these, these uh, four kings and uh, their army are not wimps. And so Abram and his 318 men, though, though that's impressive on one level, if that's the entirety of the army that you can field, there are going to be problems, right? He's going to be sorely outnumbered. And we're going to find out later that actually these allies that he had in the region went with him. They sent, they sent uh, armies as well. But, but even then, these are, these are not men on par with the eastern kings. These eastern kings have, have, have taken on and defeated mightier foes than Abram and his buddies again and again and again over the space of 13, 14 years now. And so uh, he's, the, the odds are against him. He's not really all that impressive when you think about it on the international scale. 318 men might be, you know, you can defend yourself against the people around you, but you're not going to go to war with 318 men. But it's impressive when we read about him. We continue reading verses 15 and 16. We see that the Lord is with him. Verse 15, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. So here he's able to come against them uh, using some kind of, you know, he, he does it under cover of night. He divides his army. He's able to attack them. He attacks them. He defeats them. He pursues them to Hobah, north of Damascus, which is a long way. And verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. And so he goes out to battle against, uh, against all odds, and he wins. I think there's another observation here just in passing that long odds are no hindrance to the Lord. And Abram wins a surprising victory. It's, it's unexpected. It's surprising. If you think about what's going on, Abram should not have been able to pull this off, and yet he does pull this off. A surprising victory. And then... A surprising exchange is what comes about. And so I want to look through this last paragraph. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. I want to look at these, uh, these two kings that come out. You've got the king of Sodom. We know the, the character of the city of Sodom and the region. We're going to meet the king of Sodom. He's going to come out. We're going to hear him in conversation with Abram. At the same time, we're going to see another king, the king of Salem. And he's going to come out. There's going to be conversation and interaction between Abram and him as well. And so uh, I want to uh, read through this uh, one more time, and then I want to talk through it in, uh, in, in chunks like that. So first of all, after his return, verse 17, from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten 
and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner and Eschol and Amri take their share. So what do we understand? What are we to make of this weird interaction? Abram is coming back from victory. He's, he has defeated these uh, four powerful, uh, mighty eastern kings. He has uh, defeated them, and he's on his way back, and he's got all these possessions, all the, all the uh, spoils of war that he's recovered. He's recovered a lot. He's recovered all these people, all this wealth, and he's bringing it back, and he, he gets met on the road, as it were, by these two men, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Well, uh, we see, first of all, two kings come out to him. The king of Sodom, and by the way, this is, if you think about who Sodom is and you think about what's going on with Sodom, this is the one who has uh, the most, um, should have the most gratitude to Abram. All of his stuff, all of his people, his land was lost. He just lost a war. And Abram went and retrieved all of that stuff, all of those people. Abram saved his neck saved his kingdom. And so this is the king of Sodom. What's he going to be like? He's the one who, you know, you'd think he'd come out with, with uh, great uh, joy and gratitude, but he simply comes out to meet him. Well, okay, so he came out to meet him, but that becomes really uh, noteworthy to us when we compare how the king of Salem, who also comes out to meet him, apparently at the same time, apparently at the same place. It's an interaction that's uh, all right there together. The king of Salem comes out, and when the king of Salem comes out, he brings bread and wine. Now, minor detail, but when you're having a direct contrast, you have these two men, king of Sodom, king of Salem. They're both coming out. They're entering to the same interaction. The descriptions of difference and similarity between the two is going to be important in understanding what's going on. The king of Sodom goes out to meet him. Okay, great. What else? We don't know. King of Salem comes out to meet him and gives him bread and wine. He, he, he lays a banquet, as it were, for this conquering hero who's returning, the one who has saved the whole region. And the king of Salem goes out and meets him in that capacity. He lays a banquet for him. And so you have two kings come out. Well, then both of the kings speak. And when the king of Salem speaks to Abram, what's the first thing that he says? Blessed be Abram. And he continues with the blessing. And so you see what this king is like, this king of Salem. He's, he's brought a, a banquet. He's, he's brought bread and wine. He's hospitable. He's generous to Abram. He, he, when he meets him, he says, blessed be Abram. He, he leads with blessing for him. He's, he's a very positive character. Well, the king of Sodom, remember, who owes him everything, who owes yeah, his uh, life of his kingdom, essentially. What are uh, the first words out of the mouth of the king of Sodom? Gimme. Give me the people and you can keep the stuff. See the contrast there? That the, the king of Salem leads with blessing and the king of Sodom leads with give me. Give me the persons. Take the goods for yourself. He's, he's all business. And it's not even really good business that he's doing. But you see a great difference in the two characters that the king of Sodom just comes out and says, give me. The king of Salem comes out with a banquet and says, blessed be Abram and blessed be his God. There's a great difference between the two. Well, there's also a difference in Adam's uh, Abram's response to each of them. How does Abram respond to the blessing that's given to him? 
King of Salem comes out. Melchizedek is his name. He comes out and he blesses him. Abram receives the blessing. He doesn't reject it. He's about to reject something else for the, for, for the other king, but, he, but he, he receives it and he, in fact, pays tithes. He gives a tenth of all that he has with him in response to uh, Melchizedek, who is a priest of God Most High. He recognizes this man as a spiritual brother and even a spiritual superior. And he pays tithes to the man. He receives the blessing of this priest of God Most High, and he pays tithes to him. And so in passing, there's a, an observation for us just to note here that God was at work in Canaan in other ways than just with Abram. It's interesting. You don't expect to find anyone else on earth who knows God Most High. But here we find a man who does. Here we find a man who is priest of God Most High. He's impressive enough to Abram that Abram receives a blessing from him and pays tithes to him. He recognizes him as a spiritual brother and even a spiritual superior. God was at work in Canaan in, in this other mysterious way. And that's surprising. That ought to surprise you. It, it surprises me. But God already had a, a priest in the land, probably in Jerusalem itself, king of Salem. And I think I don't want to make too much of this because the Bible is the story of redemption, and we learn about redemption from uh, the Bible. But sometimes we, uh, we can think that God really needs us to accomplish His work, that God really needed Abram to accomplish His work, that all uh, God's chips were uh, placed there. I shouldn't bring up a gambling. I, we live in Nevada. I don't know what happens. <laughs> but, but everything is bet on Abram. That's what we think. Everything's right there. Everything's located in him, and in many ways it is. But we see a glimpse that, oh, God has also this other man. That's weird. I didn't expect that. God is doing other things. I think sometimes we can think that God really needs us to accomplish his work. He really needs me to accomplish his work. And, and that's a good impulse, isn't it? Because what that's saying is, I'm willing, Lord, to be available to you. I want to I serve you. I want to be useful to you as you do your ministry. I want to be an instrument in your hands to accomplish whatever you would, would have accomplished and wherever you would have accomplished it. And so that's a good impulse. But sometimes we forget that God has all things at His disposal to accomplish His purposes, that I'm really not central to the whole thing. I remember we moved to Russia and, and, uh, in uh, uh, 2007. We moved there and we were in very southern Russia, and, and uh, we were going to uh, teach the Bible and, and, uh, and disciple people and, and grow the church there, and those are the things we were going to do. And I was surprised when I got there to see all these South Koreans running around. And they stand out. You, you can see a, a great difference between an ethnic Russian and an ethnic Korean, and you could see them running around, and, and, uh, and there were lots of them. And I thought, why are all these South Koreans here? Well, some had been there for generations. But there was a great influx of South Korean Christian missionaries to Russia. They saw it as their mission field, and so they were sending out missionaries right and left to Russia. And they would come through our city, and they would learn the language there, and God was ministering in Russia, not just from the United States, not just with us. We weren't the key to the whole thing. We got there, and God was already at work doing stuff. And I think sometimes 
we can uh, think that more things hinge upon us really than do. So uh, we meet Melchizedek. He's a priest of God Most High. He's a spiritual brother. Uh, he's one that, that uh, Abram actually pays tithes to. But what about the king of Sodom? What's, what's Abram's response to him? Well, Abram's response is very different to him. The, the man responds with, give me. Give me the persons, but you can, you can take the possessions. Sounds very generous on the one hand, but in fact, Abram was the one who just retrieved all of those possessions. So they, they really belonged to him, or if not, if not all of them and all of everything, then at least a hefty a recovery fee for what he had just done. He risked his neck. He's the one who went to war. He was the one who was able to conquer these kings that the king of Sodom was not able to. And so, really, it was his, or a good portion of it was his. And when this man offers it to him, Abram recognizes what kind of man the king of Sodom is. And he recognizes that if I take anything from this man, he's the kind of person. This is the kind of culture that later on he will say, you see, Abraham, that rich man, I did that. You see, I really got him started. I gave him his seed money. I'm the one who initially invested in him when I gave him this stuff. And so, yeah, he's a great man now, and, and that's kind of thanks to me. Abram recognizes that's the kind of man the king of Sodom is. And so, though these possessions and though these, though these people, though Abram had a, a, a right to them, a claim to them, yet he says, no, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to receive a gift from the king of Sodom. I'm not, I'm not going to let it be seen that I have been enriched by this man, which is very different, by the way, than, than what happened with the interaction with Melchizedek. He receives the blessing joyfully, and he actually gives in return a tenth of all that he owned. And so he refuses to take anything. He, he defends the right of his compatriots to get what they should get, but he refuses himself to take anything, and that's the close of the story. Now, a choice lies before me because we haven't even, I've mentioned Melchizedek's name about four times. And he's a very enigmatic character. And so, um, he's only mentioned two other places in the Bible, by the way. He's mentioned in Psalm 110, verse 4. And then in Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, he's mentioned several times. But other than that, he's not mentioned. But he's such an enigmatic character. He's, he, he raises such questions in our minds. And there is so much theology that, that, that uses his name and is attached to an understanding of who he is that's developed later on that if I were to try and lay that out for you now in the next few minutes, I would do a terrible job. So I'm not going to do that. We have a, a, a couple of points that, that are typically focused on with Melchizedek, and that's his identity. That's a giant question. I'm not going to answer that today. Secondly is his position. And that's a, that's a huge thing that's developed later on. If you think about Hebrews developing uh, about the priesthood of Melchizedek, and that's what's mentioned in Psalm 110.4, and that's what the author to the Hebrews picks up on, talking about Christ being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so his office is a very important, uh, theologically rich and central aspect for us. And I'm not going to develop it today. I'm going to develop today in our remaining few minutes what he says Psalm 110 doesn't talk about what he says. Hebrews 5, 6, and 7 don't talk about what he says. 
And I want to close out just with a short emphasis here on the words of Melchizedek. I think we can get distracted, particularly as we know things that are said later on about him. He has, he has no genealogy. He has no father or mother. And we're thinking, ooh, is this an eternal, uh, an eternal being? Is this uh, maybe a pre-incarnate Christ? Maybe uh, what is this? Who is this Melchizedek? And we're questioned. We, we're, these questions uh, pique our interest and kind of distract us. We're going to talk about those next week. We're going to spend some time focusing on the office and the person of Melchizedek next week. But what I want to focus on this week are the things that he said. So if you'll bear with me just for the last couple of minutes. We're looking at verse 19. So Melchizedek comes on the scene. Remember, uh, king of Salem, brings out bread and wine. He's priest of God most high, and he blesses Abram. And this is what he says. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I think it's interesting that his words are never reflected on. His words are not what is built uh, later on into Psalm 110 and other things. And, 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 uh, and we're going to develop those because that's the main thrust and the main emphasis. That's the, that's the main, uh, those are the main things that we learn from Melchizedek and, uh, and what's developed about him, this very enigmatic character in this passage. Focusing on the words that he says. We talked already about the fact that he comes to bless Abram. Comes on the scene. And he says, may God bless Abram. And we read earlier in chapter 12 already that those who bless him will be blessed. Well, here you've got an example of a man coming to Abram and blessing him. And he says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Or some of your translations might read, creator of heaven and earth. Basically, I think what... what, uh, Melchizedek here is saying is, may God bless Abram, and God is the one who has the authority, the right, the ability, the power, and the riches to bless Abram. That he's the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's not just the God of the hills. He's not just the God of rain, and so, Abram, you'll be blessed with good crops, or you'll be blessed with uh, this other thing over here, or, or, or this thing there. God is the creator and thus the possessor of all things, Abram. And thus, he has the ability to bless you. He is the one who is guiding your life. He is the one making these promises. Folks, when we talk about God, We're not just invoking some mysterious word of deity, higher power. When we talk about God, when we in this room talk about the God of the Bible, it brings with it all of this information, all of this encouragement about who He is and what He's like. And so when you and I talk about God, there is freight that comes with it. Perhaps when you're talking with your neighbor over the back fence and you talk about God, it may not have the same freight in their minds. It may not have the same meaning. They may have a completely different conception of God. But when we 
talk about God and when we talk about God blessing you, when we talk about what the Lord is doing in our lives or what the Lord has promised or what the Lord means for me or what the Lord has done for me, it brings freight with it. It brings information. It brings truth with it that is encouraging so that when we say, God bless you, we in this room don't just hear a spell. We don't just hear a phrase that people say. We hear an invocation that we want the God who created all things, who is eternally existent, three in one, to bless you with what you need. It carries some weight. It brings freight with it. And I think that's what Melchizedek is doing here to Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, who is the possessor of heaven and earth. He has all ability to bless you. Even, by the way, when you leave the land and go over here, God is able to do that. When you leave the land and go down into Egypt and all things happen there, God still enriches. God is able to do that. He is not bound. He is possessor, the creator of all things. And so he says, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High. God is blessed. Now, when, when we bless someone, when we bless another person, we are invoking God, we are asking God to enrich and bless that person in all the ways that they need, the ways that God sees fit, that God would bless you. We're desirous to see God's best in your life, to see God provide for you and, 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 and protect you and, and bless you and grow you and mature you and, and all of those things. We're, when we ask God's blessing on you, that's what we're asking. What about when we talk about blessing God? We don't, we don't say it very often in our church, and that probably won't change, but people talk about, you know, bless God. Bless God in Africa, that's what they say. Well, that doesn't mean that we're seeking to add some kind of blessing to God that he does not already have, as if he's imperfect and needs to receive something to make him perfect, as if he's lacking in blessedness in some way, and so we want to bless him so that he will now have it. It's very different. When we bless God, we are recognizing and acknowledging that he is blessed, that he is the source of all blessing. We're recognizing what he is like. We're recognizing that God is wondrous and glorious and powerful, and he is able to bless and able to save. As the psalmist says in Psalm 28 and verse 8, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. That is our God. That is our God. That is what He is like. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the possessor of heaven and earth, and He is blessed. And Melchizedek recognizes the blessings that are found in God. And then the conclusion. The last little line there. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. I don't know how many times I read, read past this and I didn't see it. I, I don't know how many times I've read this chapter. I don't know how many times simply in preparation for this message or this preaching series that I've read these words, but I missed it all of those times. The import of that last line. If you look back at Genesis chapter 12, the first few verses there, 1, 2, and 3, you see God making promises. 
God saying, I will do this. I will do that. And you see in verse 7 of chapter 12, God saying to your offspring, I will give this land. God is promising what he's going to do. At the end of that chapter, in verse 14 and following, of, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, verses 14 and following, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. God is making promises. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. All of these promises God has made, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do, what I'm going to do. Basically, what I think Melchizedek is saying is, Abram, God has made monumental promises to you. He's promised you that He will make you a great nation. He will give you great blessing, a great name. He's promised you that in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's promised you a land. He's made all these promises to you, and you've, you've had hints that He's at work. You've seen a pro, uh, evidences of God's providence in, in bringing these things about. But Abram, I am priest of God Most High, and I am here to tell you that it was God Himself who delivered your enemies into your hand today. I am here, says Melchizedek, as priest of God Most High, to say God not only promises, He is doing it. Now, Abram might have recognized that in passing. Maybe he and Sarai talked about that. Maybe even he and Lot talked about that, recognized God was fulfilling some of those promises or, or it seemed like he was uh, doing things behind the scenes. But here you have a priest show up, a representative of God who says, God is fulfilling his promises. God is keeping his word. He's saying, I can tell you, that this victory over the kings of the east, this rescue of your nephew Lot, is the very work of God on your behalf. You didn't luck out. It wasn't just that you were a military genius disguised as a vagabond. God delivered your enemies into your hand. It is a sign, it is a foretaste that God will keep all his promises to you. That's the first time we have confirmation that God is doing anything explicit confirmation that God is doing anything besides making promises. And here, out of the mouth of this priest of God Most High, we have a declaration. It was God who delivered your enemies into your hand. It's not just promises. Here is an inkling of fulfillment, not just because you detected it, not just because you had a good attitude that day and a positive outlook that, okay, God really must be doing something. It was because this priest recognized it was God who delivered. It was a foretaste that God will keep His promises. Those are the words of Melchizedek. And I think they have import for us. God often calls His people to trust and endure in faith in times when we can't see the Lord's work. We've been entrusted with a task. We've been put in a place where where we've been called to trust the Lord and be faithful in that circumstance. And it goes on and on and on. We're often called to trust and endure in faith, even in difficult times. He has said, for example, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a promise from God. Will He keep that promise? Sometimes 
We were talking in our Connect group this week about sometimes we, we, f- we feel condemnation. We feel, it, we feel it right here. Sometimes we receive it from other people. Well, that's one thing. And sometimes maybe the enemy piles it on us. That's, that's another thing. And sometimes it just arises from within. We feel condemnation. And, and, and when, we, when we do that, when we feel that, and we, we're reading through and we go through Romans chapter 8 and we read that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we wonder, really? Because I can point to some condemnation. I can, I can talk about it. I can tell you what it feels like. I can tell you what it sounds like. Are you sure? God, are you sure when you made this promise? Are you going to keep that? Will he keep his word? All our hope as Christians rides on whether God will keep his word. Everything is bound up in whether our Lord will keep his word. And so every Sunday, we come together and we open God's word. We want to know whether God will keep his word. And as we do that, we are reminded that God does, in fact, do what he says he will do. We see promises made in the Bible. Promises made of the offspring of the woman who will defeat the serpent and crush his head. That's a promise that we read several chapters ago, and we're still waiting. We, we, we read and we get to this story, and we're, we're kind of still waiting, and the people are still waiting. It's a promise that's been made. But then we continue to study, we continue to preach God's word, and we see God keeping that promise in Christ, who is the ultimate offspring of the woman who lives righteously before God and crushes his heel in the very act of crushing the head of the serpent. And he dies on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins and for yours. Does God keep his word? Does God keep his promises? He does. And he does in a saving way. And so we open God's word in front of us and we, and we come to study and we come to hear God's word proclaimed. And, and this passage doesn't have a lot of uh, here's how you should go and live your life type stuff. This passage is about who is God and what's he like. In the dark times, in the, in the political events that are going on, can we relate? What's God like and what's he doing and can we trust him and will he keep his word? And we open up and we see once again Melchizedek coming on the scene in all of his mystery, all the things connected with him. And he says, may God bless Abram. May God, who is the possessor, the creator of all things, who is wonderful and able to bless, may he bless Abram. And I see evidence of it already, Abram, in that it was God who delivered your enemies into your hand today. Evidence of God keeping his word. And so, folks, you and I, when we live through our lives, we're not, we're not usually dealing with these kind of circumstances, and, and we've got other things that we struggle with. Will God keep his word? When you feel condemnation, when you, when you, when you know that by rights there should be condemnation, when people are telling you, there's condemnation when you, the enemy's piling it on when you're in that dark moment. Is God going to keep his word? Did God speak true when he said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Is that going to be true? Well, that's the daily struggle of faith, isn't it? You can give in to despair, or you can decide, well, I'll just do better in my life and that I won't feel this condemnation. 
or you can trust that God will keep His Word because of who He is and what He's done for us in Christ. And so we open God's Word week after week and we look into it week after week and we study it and we, and, and, and we see what God has done and we learn of God that in fact He makes promises that are astoundingly huge and He keeps them. And we can trust Him. We can lean on Him. When everything is against us, we can lean on Him. He has made those promises of salvation in Christ. And regardless of what we feel, regardless of what people might say, He keeps His promises for our good. And He does so for His own glory. What a blessed thing that our good is wrapped up in that. And so as you open God's Word, as you come to church on Sunday, come expectant to see to learn of God the promises that He makes and what He's like and whether He will indeed keep those promises so that week after week our, our attention is drawn back and we're, we're a little bit like Abram who, who, who just coming back from battle and yeah, he won and it was all great, but we need to hear the word, God is blessing. It was God who did that thing. God is faithful. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Father, we often uh, struggle in various ways to trust you. We struggle to believe you. We look at our circumstances and we think that we're a little bit like Abram going to war with 318 men against, against nations. We feel like that. Help us, Father, even as we have seen today, to recognize your promises and to believe that you are the God who keeps his word, that you are able to do so. There, there is nothing lacking in you. Your arm is not too short. You are the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. And you are willing. You are blessed and willing and desirous to bless your people and powerful and, and profound and perfect ways. And may we cast ourselves upon you, our faithful God. Father, I pray that we would look to you and trust you in this way and that as we go about our week and perhaps circumstances align against us, perhaps we find ourselves in, in uh, difficulty and struggle and temptation and in hardship, may we look to Jesus who keeps his promises to save all those who will call upon him, place their faith in him. And he is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for us. We rejoice in that. May we take practical comfort and joy and pass it to one another this week because of these truths. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.